Okay, so today I'm here. I have an interview with Asha Terry. Um, welcome to Arash's world. Um, she's a hypnotherapist, I'm sorry, hypnotherapist, psychotherapist. <laughs> I don't know if you do hypno. Uh, psychotherapist, life coach, and community mental health advocate. And uh, you have uh, recently written a book. It's called Adulting as a Millennial and uh, a guide to everything your parents didn't teach you. So congrats to that. Thank you. Your book. It's, uh, it's, it's difficult to uh, finish a book. I find writing a book is okay. I've done it, but getting it done, finishing it, I think that's a hard part for me. Yeah, very true. And um, all these things, uh, psychotherapist, life coach, and uh, community, community mental health advocate are things I'm very much interested in myself. So uh, these are uh, things that I um, value in my life, but these are also things I blog about. Uh, on my blog and so psychology is uh, very important to me mm -hmm. and another topic that I find quite interesting because of all these changes that are happening in the world is the topic of Millennials and I'm planning to put an article together um, on um, the Millennials and um, I'd like to know a bit more about that that could be maybe our focus but also generally about your work and what you do as a, as a psychotherapist so um, yeah, let's actually, let's get started with the question. Um, and the title of the book is uh, Guide to Everything Your Parents Didn't Teach You as your um, uh, second line here, your byline. And my question is, um, why not? Why do you mm. think parents don't teach us these well, things? Well, um, thank you first for having me on your show, Arash. It's really a pleasure to be here. And I want to say that it's, it's sort of a a twist in the book with that second title, the subtitle of the book, because I think it's not an intentional thing that parents do. But what I've noticed in working with so many millennials is that there are a lot of things that just went amiss. They miss maybe certain lessons or because they're still of an age where they're learning and discovering themselves and how the world works and how to build relationships and grow those relationships and networks, there are a lot of things that they haven't really yet settled into, including the things that their parents did teach them. And sometimes that doesn't come right away. I know my hardest lessons were garnered by the, the, the lessons that I learned the best were the things that were the hardest to learn. And I think it's the same for millennials. I, I think I appreciated my parents much more when I got a little older and I had worked and lived a little bit uh, than I did when I was first out of college or the first few years out of college, which are what millennials in the early stage of millennials are. So I'm not, you know, blaming parents, but I think, you know, the generation that millennials grew up in, it, it was a, a, a fast developing time. Um, you know, the internet was booming, social media came about during the age of millennials parents were working longer hours. Uh, if you had two parents in the home, most likely two parents were working long stretches of time. Kids grew up in front of the television or in front of social media. They weren't actively participating in games and outdoor activities and, you know, gym became a thing of the past. So you had a lot of things that kids just naturally would have missed because they could have been latchkey kids or could have grown up around the time of their grandparents raising them. So there would have been a lot of things that they just naturally would not have been inclined to know because their parents were out of the home. And the things that they're now experiencing, which is a lot of anxiety and imposter syndrome, 
comes about as a result of a lot of kids not having had great discipline growing up um, or structure growing up um, or didn't have things that built confidence like I did when I was a kid. So I have all of these young, brilliant minds, but these really anxious bodies in my office and now virtually that I'm working with because of that. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. I think um, parenting, I mean, I'm a parent myself now. I have an 11-year-old boy. And um, one thing I, I've learned from my parents is not to repeat their mistakes. And I'm not blaming them, but in fact, I'm actually grateful for <clears throat> their mistakes because now I can focus better on what I need to do. So all the things they got wrong, I have a chance of getting right as a parent myself. So um, even I, I think actually adversity and suffering is, is something are the greatest teachers and without sounding blasé about that, but I think that's where I've learned most and um, converting it into a, a learning experience instead of being uh, afraid of it or running away from it or feeling guilt and blame. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Same here. The, um, the belief that we're going to get the lesson quickly or the first time is a myth because the lessons that I learned, like I mentioned, came from hard things that happened to me, difficult challenges that I went through and sometimes more than once. But I believe from the, the experience that I have of working with people in general, but also specifically millennials, is that folks don't want to suffer. And of course, no one wants to suffer, but the expectation that you're gonna live this life unscathed is another myth. So that's partly what the book debunks is that you have to go through life, allowing yourself to live, allowing yourself to fall, but not fall apart. Um, being willing to get the lesson and not take everything as a failure and stop there, but be inquisitive and investigate uh, what happened, what may have gone wrong, whether it was a job loss or a friendship that was uh, misinterpreted by some form of miscommunication. And that will ultimately make us better, better people is by being curious and, and willing to learn from life's experiences instead of trying to avoid them. Mm -hmm. As a parent, you're also very much concerned. I mean, I myself that I may be making it too easy for my son of, you know, of him not suffering. And so, because that is where I learned the most from. So that is a concern of like, you know, finding the right balance without being overprotective, but also not like you're on your own and try to deal with it. And that is something in terms of independence that uh, here, and I think uh, I, I live in Canada, but also in the US and the Western world, it's encouraged, but to a degree where I, I kind of would disagree because they are basically pushing them out and say, okay, now, you survive. The most extreme example would be throwing your kids into the swimming pool and say, now learn how to swim. Mm -hmm. And I find, I would find that traumatic if that was my experience of learning that way. What are your thoughts about that? I really believe it's based on the personality of your child. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, I think, sometimes miss that. Um, every child is different. You can have more than one child in the same family and have multiple personalities because every child has their own personality. Some kids are very sensitive to criticism and um, are very attached to their parents and they can't separate easily for different reasons. Others are very independent, very young, and they want to be. 
Um, so I think it depends on your child and you have to be uh, curious about your child and know your child and remember that your child is not you. Your child is their own person and they have ideas and they have developing minds and they're, they're looking to know things. And so you have to get to know what kind of personality they have before you could decide maybe what's good for them or not. And sometimes your kid will teach you what's good for them. Oh, he does teach us a lot, many times. And so when he's right, I mean, I say, you know what? You're absolutely right. It's not like uh, my parents who would say, no, you have no right to tell me anything. And it's like, or I told you to do so, but then he comes re up with reasons why he thinks I'm wrong. And I analyze it and say, you know what? It's yours, you win. <laughs> but um, I think um, some of the other things you mentioned, like uh, imposter syndrome and... Um, um, many people suffer that actually. And I must say, uh, I, I'm guilty of it as well to a certain degree where you think, you know, there is a point in your life, it's like, oh, I, it wasn't me. It was just luck. It was like um, random or uh, the person just liked me. It wasn't because of my work that they hired me. And so um, how can we deal with these kind of negative thoughts and feelings that, that creep up? And I, I read somewhere that about 70% of people have had this feeling at some point of the lives. And I, I, I can attest to that too. It's, uh, it happens uh, occasionally to me as well. <laughs> I don't think the idea of imposter syndrome is the worst thing ever to have. Number one, in psychology and sociology, it's actually not an illness. Um, we use the term syndrome, but syndrome is a, is a cluster of symptoms that creates maladaptive lifestyles. And so it's not, I want people to really get that clear is that although that term is used with imposter, it's not an illness. Um, it is a phenomenon. It is a, a feeling and a belief that's attached from the feelings that there is something um, wrong with you or that you lack a certain ability or skill to be able to do something, i.e. perform at a job or in a role that you've been ascribed. And I believe in some ways the anxiety around am I good enough can be transformed into, well, if I believe that maybe I'm not as good, I could do something to become better. So you could really turn that feeling of negativity into something really helpful if you use it as motivation to learn more, to hone your skills, to maybe get a mentor if you need a mentor. So in some ways it can drive people. And that's how I like to use it in my coaching work and in my therapy work is like, how can you take this idea if it's true and make it something rich and enriching to your life? And so if people think of it that way, it's like, anxiety. Your brain doesn't know the difference between fear and excitement. So if you tell yourself, I'm really excited about this new job, this new opportunity, this new thing I'm going to do, then that same energy that you put into being anxious, you could put into being excited and actually get the job done. So I think that it can be used in that way. Um, I was actually listening to something this morning about how it takes five affirmations to change the negative bias of one negative thing that you think. And I believe that that also is very helpful. The anecdote for me has always been to become smarter, to learn more, to develop, to, to develop myself more than I have been developed up to that point that I'm looking to grow myself professionally or, or personally. So I think to be hungry for knowledge is, is another way to deal with that. Um, to be curious about life is another way to deal with that. 
and be open to learning um, as a student, whether you master something or you're on your way to mastering something, because we all are students. And I think it makes life much more beautiful to live when we live our lives, always curious about how to do so. Yeah, and uh, one of the things I, I realized at some point is that perfectionism, and that is something that's, that's hailed in our society as, as something to strive for, that that is actually a sign, of, in my view at least, a sign of insecurity because you don't believe in yourself enough and it is also a sign of suffering because nobody can be perfect. So, and having that ideal is basically you're preparing yourself for defeat and for feeling bad and for feeling like a failure. And that is something that before I realized it within myself, I did not see as a, let's call it a flaw, because I thought, well, this is good, right? But it's not in many ways. Yeah, perfectionism is actually the result of trauma. And what we've seen is when people have been traumatized in early development, they tend to develop these maladaptive symptoms that sometimes looks very much like um, obsessions and compulsions. And so perfectionism is really an obsession and a compulsion, um, be a compulsive behavior. When you look to make everything as, you know, perfect as you think it can be, it really drives people to overwork themselves um, and to over ascribe to these um, ideas about how to do everything and, and it's really sad to witness when you see that because it is a form of suffering um, you know people do have some OCD at times as a result of trying to perfect things um, I often tell people like myself too that it's good to do your best work it's good to do the best at what you are good at and I like to get better at what I do I like to make sure that my work speaks for itself in a way that represents me well. So it's okay, it's good to strive for um, excellence, but not perfection because nothing is perfect and people actually respect you and appreciate you more when you do uh, understand your flaws and, and you're honest about those flaws. I think I, I fully agree with uh, the trauma part that this is part of our trauma. And I think it's really, it's not so much about others, you wanting others to accept you as you wanting yourself to accept yourself. So it's, mm -hmm. it's really something that, that, that we, we project onto, onto others. And so um, it's okay to make mistakes because we have catastrophic thinking and we think, oh my God, I made a mistake in my job, now I'm gonna get fired. And, and then you realize later on, no, this is just a process. And mm -hmm. people are actually more understanding than we give yes. them credit for in many cases. Um, I would like to know your approach because it seems to me it's, it's mostly uh, cognitive behavioral, um, mm -hmm. but I hear a sense of what I strongly believe in, which is psychoanalysis. And that is something I'm, I'm very passionate about. So the trauma part might be an overlap between uh, both of these fields. So what uh, is your approach? How do you, is it cognitive behavioral mostly? What would you say? Yes, so in my psychotherapy work, I use mindfulness-based CBT, mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm a mindfulness practitioner. I've used it with myself for the past four years. It's transformed me. It's helped me to relax more, to breathe and pause often when I feel stressed. 
And it's been very useful with my clients because most people who I work with have a trauma history. They're not necessarily aware of it when they're coming into therapy, but as we dig more into their past, we find that that's true, that they've been traumatized in early childhood or they've had compounded trauma, what we call complex PTSD. So yeah, that's one approach. I was also trained as an analyst. Uh, that's oh, interesting cool. that you brought that up. So I didn't know if you knew that already, yeah. but I, I was trained in object relations psychoanalysis. Ooh, and yeah. yeah, it was one of the best things at the time for me because I was really curious about relationships and how they function, the ones I also grew up a, a part of. But in my years of doing work, and I've been a mental health professional for 20 years, but I've been in private practice for six and a half. And in my years of work, when I went to school for psychoanalysis, which was about a decade ago, it was a great thing to discover. But in that time that I was in school and as I was growing my work, it was much more valuable at the time. So I think the numbers of people who were anxious were a lot lower um, and people who were more depressed were probably growing. And so people were really curious about like, how did I get here? What is this suffering that I'm experiencing? You know, they were more open to going back in the past and trying to uncover things and trying to understand themselves in the present moment. And so we were looking at the unconscious and the motivation for change and the transference that goes on in relationships. However, as time has moved on, just like in our society, things have rapidly increased in terms of people's need for relief um, and the desire to be healed and to, you know, understand themselves, but in a, in a shorter uh, time frame. So I've found that Unfortunately, or fortunately, however you look at it, that people are not as willing to take the time to really uncover that much as long as psychoanalysis can take. So that's where the mindfulness-based CBT work has become more valuable for me at this time, because I see a lot of people with a lot of presentation of anxiety some who have severe anxiety to the point where they're pulling out their eyelashes or eyebrows, um, cutting themselves. I've had some clients who have been former cutters to people who are in um, the, the, the reoccurrence of trauma in their intimate relationships. And so a lot of folks need relief and they want like, how do I do this now so that I could sleep or be a little bit more relaxed at work or engage with people when I'm afraid. And that's been more helpful in these past few years. Yeah, but the truth is it does take time. And so it it's does. part of our, our society where we want quick results and which is why um, psychoanalysis is not really given a chance or option. And as you mentioned yourself, and I think what we learn from it is so valuable, so life-changing that it's, I can't put it in words. And I'm, mm. I'm myself uh, working on my own transformation, uh, which has happened probably started two years ago and I'm continuing with it. And that's why my book is not being finished because I'm not there yet. And yeah. uh, if I want to give others wisdom, I want to be, I'm the guinea pig and I want to say, yes, this worked for me and I have the result to show you. So I am very pleased to hear that you have the same approach, which uh, mm -hmm. in my view makes you an authentic person. You know, Thank and I you. know a lot of uh, life coaches, when I listen to them, and I've, I've heard, I've been to many talks, I've seen lots of lectures where I don't feel it. And I think, you know mm -hmm. what, you are in this for other reasons, maybe fame, maybe money, maybe you want to be popular, but you're not there, you know, and this is my, my personal opinion, which yeah. is based on um, a lot of life searching. I mean, I've, I've always 
ask myself questions as a team. Me too. Like, my biggest mm -hmm. question is, okay, well, we die. Well, what's going to happen? And uh, mm -hmm. I was reading um, um, War and Peace as, as, as a young teen. And I was like, will I be able to finish this book? It's so long. What if I die before I finish? And, and these are uh, things that you start like encountering and thinking about, uh, in my case. And I find a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people are afraid of facing these things. And now with COVID, we have this sense of like, oh my God, what is happening? And the, I see, I'm an optimist. So I see the good thing of it. It's like bringing out all our trauma. It's bringing, how, bringing out how we dealt with trauma when we were a child. It's such a learning experience if we're willing to face it. If not, yeah. it's going to be worse for us. I love that you said that. I, I've, in the middle of my work with clients, I was using an eclectic approach because I was fortunate to have clients that were willing to do more of the uncovering of the unconscious. And so when I was also in this um, psychoanalytic group, which would put on annual conferences, everyone in the group had some psychoanalytic training. And so a lot of us were talking about the move to more of an eclectic approach. And I was doing more of an eclectic approach of some psychoanalytic work with some CBT. And as I became aware of mindfulness, I did some training in mindfulness and I'm looking to do some more. And so I was doing more some of the, the approach of both. Um, I myself was in psychoanalysis three times a week for three years before I went into private practice. It transformed my entire life mm -hmm. as did mindfulness when I became a mindfulness practitioner. And I, you just reminded me of something as you were speaking. I remember that I was very curious as a child, but I was very quiet. So I wasn't necessarily the one who was asking a lot of questions at first. I, I, also grew up in a family that did not tolerate a lot of questions being asked. So I was an observer. You didn't know the answers, which is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My parents actually were the person, the people who would say, look that up. And, and when I grew up, we had encyclopedias. So I would look into these dusty encyclopedias before I had a computer. But they would always say, look things up, look that up. And I would, I'm like, oh, God, how many more times are they going to tell me this? I'm like, you probably don't know. That's why you're telling me to look it up. But now I value that and it comes to mind as I need to continue to look things up. But I remembered when I entered uh, college, I took a few electives in philosophy. And you just reminded me of that. So I learned about Plato and Nietzsche and I really was inspired by the idea of just to question everything um, and and I was very um, broken open by that because I grew up in a place where people were just like no you do this this way and don't don't question God and and it was very restrictive and that's why I couldn't go back home when I entered college because I felt myself becoming undone and wanting to break out of these confined beliefs about how you exist in the world, not asking questions and just following what other people tell you to do. And I wasn't that type of person. And that again, goes back to our point about understanding the kind of child that you have. I was a child that needed to know, needed people to sit down and talk with me about my feelings. And I didn't have that very much. So it makes a lot of sense that I went into psychoanalysis and I went into becoming a therapist and then a life coach. But yeah, I, I believe that a lot of us do not 
want to really find the answers. We want to be given the solutions. Yes, yes. and I, that's, that's a huge problem. And it doesn't work. It really doesn't work in that sense. I mean, when I was, uh, uh, it's again the same. My, my emotions and so on were there, but not on display and were not uh, encouraged to share them, which is, again, something not blaming because times are different. Um, parents are a different generation and they go through the same process as well. But I was reading Kierkegaard as a, as a teen, and I loved Kierkegaard. And it's like, I can relate to this. He understands me. But there's nobody I can share it with. I mean, I go to my classmates, and they're like, what are you talking about? You know? <laughs> so, so, but it helped me. Again, it's, I was aloof, and to a certain extent still am. And I don't see it as a bad thing. I'm actually, this has propelled me. This has set up the stage for what I'm doing now. And uh, I'm very grateful for that. Me too. Um, one of the main things for me with, with psychoanalysis too, I've, I've, I'd heard of it, um, I've, I've studied it, I mean, at university, and I was like, yeah, okay, there's this unconscious and so on, okay, yeah, right. And then I, uh, I read a book that is like, okay, this is interesting. It was actually Alejandro Fodorowski, the uh, filmmaker, mm -hmm. Chilean filmmaker, and he wrote okay. about, the, it's called Psychomagic and um, how you can change things that the unconscious is so important. And uh, I work uh, in, a, in a university and I asked this um, psychologist uh, who teaches psychology at our school, I asked him um, the unconscious, like, okay, if your name is Mary and it causes trauma because you are uh, identifying yourself with the Virgin Mary and so on, is that like, that's crazy, right? They said, no, it's true. And so having his uh, reaffirmation that this is true I took it seriously and I found out it was. And one of my greatest experiences was when I was terrified by bosses. I'm always scared. I used to be, not anymore, of my bosses. And there's this uh, female boss here in front of me, like telling me you didn't do this right or what you should do. And suddenly I was like, you're not my mother. And all of a sudden I felt relief to an extent mm -hmm. I never had before. And it's like, yeah, that's fine. I got it. And your mm -hmm. criticism does not touch me anymore because in fact you're wrong and I am right mm -hmm. because I'm the one who has more experience than you do. But we don't see that. And mm -hmm. I, what I want to do is, uh, and this, this is because that's uh, why I'm using myself as an example and say, look, this is true. This is the real deal. And I, 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 I'm very pleased to know that you've gone through this experience as well. Yeah. So you can relate to it. But a lot of people will, and a lot of educated people academic even psychologists will like roll their eyes and say nah this is fairy tale this is not mm -hmm. science like well a lot of psychotherapists also haven't done work on themselves uh when i started i wasn't interested in being in therapy myself i now have come to the conclusion how poorly uh i judged the the industry that i worked in and i think it was really ironic that i would have thought that as a therapist earlier in my years but when i went to grad school i mean they should have been telling people in grad school that that was a requirement for yourself they taught mm -hmm. us that that was a requirement in postgraduate school of course but when you're going into graduate school, if the track that you're on is to work with children and families or um, couples and, and individuals, I think it needs to be a requirement now in grad school, and it may be, I haven't been in school in a long time, that people should be in their own therapy. Because one, just like in psychoanalysis, it's important to understand what it's like to be the patient. Um, and two, 
to really empathize with people, I think sometimes you do need that unconscious work to be done on yourself so that you do remove some of those um, implicit biases that we all carry. So it would be helpful if that was sort of like the, the focus of also being a master's level graduate student is to be in therapy yourself. And uh, what I also like about now what they talk about unconscious bias, and it's like, finally, you know, you're, you're coming closer to, to the field that, uh, that I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. And what I like about psychoanalysis is you constantly update yourself. You're like, you need to have somebody else to check, okay, am I okay at this point? Or am I going astray or getting lost? And I went to a talk by a CBT uh, specialist who says, mm-hmm. uh, talk about being the best version of yourself. Mm-hmm. And although, and she talked about mindfulness too and so on. And, but I was like, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? What is myself? Did you actually explain how to find yourself? It's just the assumption, be yourself. It's the mm-hmm. same as somebody can't sleep is suffering from insomnia. It's like, go to sleep. Or mm-hmm. somebody who is down and say, oh, just be happy. It doesn't work that way. So when you're telling me be yourself, I have no idea what you're talking about. And mm-hmm. I don't think most people do. So how do we deal with this? How can we get people to know themselves first before they try to be themselves? Just like you've been doing. I think people think of this word that I use a lot in my work, confrontation, as a frightening term. And I don't think of confrontation as frightening. I think of confrontation as what the word actually means, which is directness. And most of us, we work over time being indirect with ourselves, with other people. We avoid ourselves at all costs, which is why mental health is growing in terms of therapy as a practice, because people don't really want you to ask them direct questions at times. People want to present an image, a, a false self, that things are great and they, they have all of the answers and there are no problems in the world to be solved. And it's very hurtful not only to the individual, but it's hurtful to other people who are young and impressionable who don't understand that that is not necessary, number one, in order to survive. Um, is actually quite counterproductive to self-development. And, and we should become more interested in finding out things that we don't know about ourselves. The greatest lesson I learned from my father, who the book is dedicated to, is that you're always discovering things about life. And if you are willing to be, as I've always said, um, open to learning, you'll realize that you do not know anything. My father was studying, you know, different text and different public figures and um, coaches around the world and, and ministers around the world well into his 90s when he passed away. He was always reading. He was talking with me. He was interested in learning new things and concepts that inspired me so that I would always remain open to newness and that everyone who enters space with me and I with them can teach me something. Um, And what we learn at the end of everything is that we really don't know anything. Mm -hmm. So there is no, there is no real you. (laughs) There's an idea of you. Yeah. Yeah, You know, and you is not fixed. You is not impermanent um, or permanent, but I think, people tend to think that they have a grip on themselves or that they should. So that when I meet millennials, for example, 
um, that's part of the conversation is this unraveling between who they thought they were from these high school graduate college students to now they're in their mid to late 20s early 30s and they're like I always thought that I was this person or I'm like you probably thought you were the person that everyone else thought you were you probably were the person that your parents wanted you to be you're probably the person that your friends admired but you're not actually those things which is causing in some ways a crisis of identity because you believed those things so deeply you know we hold these fixed ideas about ourselves and the world and when that's shaken up we're very rattled because we need to feel stable, we need to feel familiar, and we need things to feel like uh, understood. But I think sometimes the best discovery is when you know nothing, when you're unsure, when serendipity occurs. So how do we get to know ourselves is to realize that you really don't and be open to letting people and things give you opportunities to think a new way about something. And, And that will expand your mind over and over again. And being curious and being open to things we find. It's like you look into yourself, you're like, oh, that's interesting. I did not know that I had that. That's right. But being the best version of yourself, which I just like, I just, I just hate that term. Because it's a it's like catchphrase. It's like, let's wear this today. And it's, for me, it's being authentic. Be who you are is being authentic to how you are and what is authentic, what feels right. This feels right. Mm-hmm. Not thinking about what will others think of me? Mm-hmm. How will others react? This is how I am. And this is how I want to project myself. And when there's this like um, overlap between the two, then we're doing okay. And in most cases, it's not. And this is why there is uh, a lot of loneliness. There are people mm-hmm. who are using drugs as an escape or alcohol as an escape. And I, I think this is really the void of they're missing themselves and they're looking for it and finding something to alleviate the, the pain and suffering. I, I, I probably have been guilty, yeah, of that same thing, of, of me saying that, you know, being the best version of myself because it, it means something to me for me, but it doesn't mean that that means the same to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have some ideas around what that means to me, but that changes day by day. And that's partly what I do with clients when I coach them is, you know, scale back sometimes these grand ideas about what you have to accomplish and putting this quote in air quotes is because have to is such a pressured way of thinking of things and scale it back to just what's important right now. And when I think of the word authenticity, what I think of is honesty. I think of uh, serendipity, spontaneity. I think when you're authentic, you're not overthinking things. You're not sculpting an answer that sounds right. Mm-hmm. The spontaneity of what do I really think about this? Maybe I don't know what I think about this. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. And that's, you know, and that's you okay. Have an opinion about everything. You know? yeah. Yeah, yeah, we don't all have to have an answer. And I think that's so br- you know brilliant um, for people to start saying is like, I'm not really sure. Let me think about that some more. Let's talk about that again later. Um, because that, that's, again, where I started when I was in college with, you know, being in, in philosophy classes. And then I had the great fortune of meeting someone at my mom's job who was a, a philosopher and he had read some of those books that I read. So I had someone to talk about it with. But um, yeah, people are, I, I'm glad to see that when I do work with people in therapy, that they come in very frantic and worked up and wanting like to be changed. 
And I say to them, like, if you're looking for some quick result, then you may need to go someplace else because that's not what's going to happen here. Mm -hmm. You're going to figure it out yourself. I'm just going to be a witness and I'll reflect back some things that I, I see or some unconscious things that are occurring and you may disagree and that's fine. That's why I'll ask you, is this what you think is going on or is this maybe what you're experiencing? But as you get you know, quote, better, again, in air quotes, it's, you know, what are you noticing about yourself? How are you feeling as you show up in your life? What are your relationships demonstrating to you? And as people have come back and said to me, like six months later in therapy, they're like, I do feel less anxious. I do sleep better. I do have more spontaneous conversations that are digging into what I want in my relationships. They're like, I really thought that I was going to come for two or three sessions and be better. <laughs> and I do feel better, but I'm not quote fixed or I, I thought this would happen sooner and I'm like why would you think if you've lived for 30 years that in two sessions you're going to fix everything that you learned for 30 years of your life that you've been doing every single day and that's what I've been thinking when I'm sometimes harsh on myself I'm like look I mean I've had trauma for 30 plus years so it's gonna take or actually 40 years it's gonna take a while to to um to get rid of it so yeah and that's why I said where's the rush we don't we don't rush people when they lose a loved one and they're coping with uh, with their loss. Grief. And we don't say, okay, mm -hmm. get over it. I mean, it's like we do respect the time it needs, and we should. I mean, that's a, mm -hmm. that's that's a good thing, unless we're using it as an excuse of running away from our own problems, which is again a completely different matter. Mm -hmm. But what I want to also talk about, and that's actually some of the main things I want to talk about, the millennials. Um, there is a lot of good things happening, and uh, I, I, I'm very happy about that. Uh, they, the mind frame of diversity, that uh, the millennials are very accepting of diversity to an extent that has never happened, I believe, in, in history. And um, I applaud that. At the mm -hmm. same time, there is an expectation and kind of intolerance, if, if I may say so, of others who disagree. And this is the uh, whole idea of cancel culture, which um, in a sense I find horrifying of not giving the other person the space or chance or the forgiveness they need. And what is happening, and again, talk about politically, instead of getting together and bridging the gaps, we are distancing ourselves even more and creating a big divide. And both people are going to more extreme forms instead of getting together both sides and talking things out and finding a solution to it. And this is something I am afraid of, you know, mm -hmm. worried about. I'm glad that you, yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. It's something that it really exhausts me physically and psychologically because I use social media in my work to um, motivate people, to also share what I'm doing, to use myself as a tool. And when I go on social media nowadays, besides this bullhorn tactic of like everything has to be loud and it has to be big, mm -hmm. um, it has to be critical, mm -hmm. um, there's this other idea of the minute someone disappoints you, you cancel them, you, you, you don't debase give them. To you don't forget. Yeah, you yeah. don't. And like you said, you don't forgive them. And then mm -hmm. there's this whole movement of people behind you, especially if you have large numbers of following on social media that, that support you. And that is so 
harmful to people's psychological health. Often, I just put something up on my timeline last night when when Kamala Harris here in New York uh, accepted the bid for vice president um, on the ticket with Biden, Joe Biden, to run for White House, um, the White House. And, you know, one of the things that I said, and, and I wasn't sure people were going to respond is, sometimes we, we either overindulge that one person is going to be our savior, and we don't know anything about them. And we haven't been, you know, interested in learning more, discovering more. We're just so like gung ho about something that is on, on paper, historical, and I understand that. But the same thing applies to when people cancel someone. It's like, mm -hmm. you thought you knew everything about this individual, which you don't. Mm -hmm. And the minute that they do something that you disagree with or shames the culture, then you debase them publicly. And it's so strange to me, although it's coming up more on social media, that people don't see that as a form of my manipulation, mm -hmm. that people don't see that as harmful to tell people what to think instead of allowing people to be critical thinkers themselves and be you know observant and can come to their own um decisions i wouldn't say conclusions about what they want to do with what they think and be open to the flexibility of your mind to change the way you think about something and sadly as a mental health provider who's on social media I get so many contexts uh, of people from their timelines of folks DMing me pictures and videos of people who are in the media, who are famous, who have mental health breaks in public, and, and people wanting me to, I suppose, jump on the bandwagon of trying to debase them. And I'm not going to do that because of who I am as a person, first of all, but also my role as a, a, a professional, which is to be responsible with my words. And I also work in the in the healthcare industry. I've seen people have psychotic breaks. I've been a part of teams that have had to hospitalize people in crises. So this idea that, let's say, a Kanye West, as I'm thinking of, would be canceled because of the egregious things that he says. Mm -hmm. And yes, when he's stable, if you want to engage in a conversation of why what he said it was egregious, do so. But I've also seen people who are considered non-psychotic who say just as egregious things yeah. who don't get canceled. And, and they have those very fixed beliefs about blackness uh -huh. or women or uh, families or poverty. And yet people still consider them great people or still want to be friends with those people. But the minute someone has a psychiatric break and is wrapped in black skin, as an example, people are very offended by that. And they personalize that instead of showing compassion for that and, and, and trying to really understand that, you know, as part of us canceling cancel culture there's a spectrum of things that we really should be canceling like poverty like discrimination like racism like sexism like homelessness like ageism we should be canceling those things instead of canceling people for saying something that we didn't believe in at the moment or we disagreed with um, or we found offensive instead of being curious to find out like why do you think that where's the evidence in that can you prove to me that that actually did occur and then let's talk about it and let's counter that with maybe some facts <laughs> and and let's talk about the the importance of why certain things should not be said around you know race or gender or sex orientation or identity because that's harmful but we can't do that when we're constantly trying to be righteous <laughs> yeah. and um and and the only one who knows something um and and self-important 
but it can't happen overnight. And this is this is the thing. I mean, you say, okay, from now on we were racist, but tomorrow we're gonna stop being racist. It doesn't work that way, you know. Yeah. And so the expectation is 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 too high of people to change. Give them room, give yeah, them dialogue, nice. give them the compassion, empathy, so they can. I mean, they might want to, but that kind of reaction turns them off, you know. And uh, uh, and the other thing of trying to erase the past, I, that is the, the wrong way, uh, the wrong approach, because it's you have to face the past, deal mm -hmm. with the trauma mm -hmm. and then move ahead. And one of the people who best uh, for me, and I, I haven't read him enough, but uh, James Baldwin for me is just uh, mm -hmm. his way of thinking, his mindset, his um, way of dealing with, with things and telling us how we can overcome these issues. He's an inspiration. And I, yeah. I, I completely agree with him, where you have this, this person who on the past in the interviews, he looks so fragile, so frail. It's like, okay, who is this man? But his ideas are so powerful that you go, how is that even possible? Mind blown. He's so relevant today. And there were so many great people that I wasn't alive to meet. And I wish I was, but I listened to today because they're so very relevant. James Baldwin is one of our heroes here in America. Um, Malcolm X, before he was, you know, the person people knew and the transformed person he became before he died. Audre Lorde, like all of these brilliant people who wrote things and said things, you know, for the LGBT community, um, the Black community, for women's rights, that <clears throat> to this day, sadly, we're still dealing with and is still relevant. And so he had you know, so many profound quotes and things that he said about racism and uh, hypocrisy and patriarchy um, that were so right on target. And, and in some ways, as you're, I think, alluding to, was, was trying to say, like, we need to cancel those things, not we need to cancel people who have different ideas. Mm -hmm. It's like everyone, you know, has a seat at the table of my humanity, but not at the expense of, of burying me in my humanity because of my race. And so, and I'm paraphrasing that, but that's that's still for me the same thing that applies today. I think because of the the rapid growth in education here in America, particularly, especially with women, there are people who are really brilliant. And as with anything that is given too much attention, sometimes it's given too much power that gets misused. And so people use the tool like social media, for example, to elevate their voice because they are smart, they're well-read, they're informed, but they're so... Um, much of themselves they're so narcissistic that they don't make room for other dialogues to occur and that's part of the harm right yeah. it's like it Absolutely. shuts down the conversation when you cancel yes. people yes and, and it's not helpful i mean this is probably the the therapist or the would-be therapist because i am an instructor not therapist but why do you feel this way why do you feel threatened by my presence why do you not accept me and mostly this is because of segregation this is like for me the worst idea of like okay here this is you this is us yeah. and um, no get together be together learn to find out that the other person is exactly like you and the only way yeah. is through interaction and right. um but it's not happening and if you are on the defensive or you are accusing the other person there is no interaction so i really like things to go, I mean, we have, um, with Obama, it was, it was a big cause of celebration. Mm -hmm. But then I said, this is not change. And I felt it, this is not an actual change. This is just, <clears throat> you know, and what happened is 
things got much worse right after. And I sometimes wish, like, I wish this change hadn't happened. It was maybe Bobby Kennedy that wanted to fulfill his promise 40 years from now, we'll have an African-American president. Yes, that happened. But we, that wasn't it. Nope. You know, and I'm we, so we, we went that. back many steps. Yes, so glad you said that. Very true, because people are still over here lauding Obama and now Kamala Harris. And that's wonderful. Yes, it's mm -hmm. historical. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's not easy to get into those positions. So I don't minimize that at all. No, but, but to be in those positions and be in a front to some changed behavior like racism is just that. It's a, it's a, a false security, and it's not done anything helpful for Black people, uh, but continue to increase the trauma that I'm seeing often, which is like, yeah, now we have another great Black person that's going to come and save the world. And it's like, they're not even elected yet. <laughs> Slow yeah. down. You don't even know if they'll be given the privileges that you so hope to ascribe to them to change the world slow down you know like that kind of stuff turns me off from social media because we start getting so excited about things and i know it's because we really need hope but that starts to that's again a trauma response to over attaching to something so quickly without giving it time to let it show its real self to you. And, and that's part of the trauma of being black in America and black in the world. But we, we can do something to repair that. And part of that is the mindfulness work of slowing down, pausing, being curious, taking your time, being observant, listening for the cues, watching. And it's just, it, it aggravates me so much, but that's where I have to work on my self-compassion because that's where it comes in. It's like, okay, just notice that people are excited. They're happy. It's a moment. Let them feel that because you have nothing to do with that. And at the same time, just, you know, ease that tension and let it out and let it go and don't hold on to it because it has nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. I, I, one, one thing that was of comfort with my psychologist friends who, who told me, and they told me not to worry about things because it's like a pendulum. And two different psychologists told me, so it, I think there's a truth to it. It's like a pendulum. We keep going to extremes, and then they go to the extreme, and finally we will find a middle ground. So it's not to overreact to these things for us personally and not to mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, just panic about it, but just say, okay, things will fall into place, but it takes time. But one of the, the problems with also Hillary of, of going up against, against Trump was uh, it was the men mental set or the idea of it's a done deal. We won. It's over. Yeah. And that's what you're saying. It's like, no, we still have a long way to go and we have to make sure it will happen. Not like the last election. You know? That's right. So and being a bit compl complacent as well. And that might be maybe something that millennials might have. It's like, yeah, that's done. We got it mm. over with and um, let's move to something else. But no, actually facing it, dealing with it completely and seeing it through, you know, to the end. I see that as patience, lack of mm, tolerance, mm -hmm. you know, and that's one of the, the, the structural issues of our world now, especially as we speed up constantly and everything is going to the IA, I mean, the AI of things. I just think that we, we really are losing the, the human uh, capacity for thinking things through and being patient enough to wait. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
Yeah, I think patience is, uh, is, is definitely important. And the, the other thing of like dealing with our own anxieties instead of mm-hmm. really projecting onto others. And social media, I've seen, I've been attacked on social media and been called names too for some of my uh, ideas, especially now with like for safety precautions uh, with, with COVID. Because I'm, very, I'm concerned, worried about it. Uh, to like and 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 others are attacking me. It's like it's not true. You are a, you're a sheep. You're ignorant and so on. And the thing that helps me in this, and probably a couple of years ago, I would have had uh, a bit of a breakdown. Say, oh my God, yes, maybe it's right uh, and so on. But now it's like, no, these are your issues. When you tell me I'm ignorant, that's actually you speaking about yourself, and mm-hmm. that gives me a certain kind of relief. Okay. I'm fine. I'm yeah, okay. empowerment. Empowerment, exactly. And I, I know I'm right, you know, in, in, in these cases. But it's, it's not about that. It's about I want others to be safe, to be well, yeah, to be healthy. And this is really a drive uh, that I have. So when they have these protests and Black Lives Matter protests and so on, that's wonderful. But we're in a yeah. pandemic, you know. Right. And I was like, you know, slow down a bit maybe you'll find different ways of doing it the cause is 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 wonderful but don't put yourself at risk because who's gonna vote him out if you all get sick you know that's right but then i get attacked by others too and then there's the notion of like no you don't know or you're a racist like okay Mm. you know it's it's that that group think you mm -hmm. know that once again is contradictory to freedom and and if we all think the same, then it, it, it's not going to be healthy because we don't allow for there to be opportunity for their the movement to occur, exchange of ideas, movement and perspectives. And, and we've seen over and over how being online in this way, where I think it is a good thing, has helped so many movements to accelerate across the world because you can go online and you can crowdfund you can go online and show videos that become viral across the world you can have zoom interviews yeah you could do zoom <laughs> interviews across the world yeah. i now have clients across the world in my coaching practice so it, it's it's that there are so many perspectives it's one of the things that i've had to work on with my clients who are millennials who are looking at ways to activate their activism and i say to them when they've been you know I would say burned by the ideas of their activism is insufficient. I say, look, I'm, I, I've been here longer than you. I'm not saying that I know it all, but I'm saying that I've studied and I've worked in activism since I was 16. And I see how it happens in different ways and how every part of activism that we've been informed about is so necessary. Everyone can go out on the streets and protest. That might even trigger someone's panic attack or yeah. someone's you know, anxiety. But you might be able to make phone calls, right, to your legislatures or write a letter or you might exactly. be able to lobby or you might yeah. be able to like crowdfund or yeah. you might be able to raise money for bail. Yeah. It's so, and all of those things are necessary for the movement. Uh, online petitions, safe, you know, the, from your home. Yeah. I, yeah, I was just shocked to see that Noam Chomsky was being attacked. I mean, you're attacking Chomsky. Like, there's, a, a, I think, a lack of respect also for the the elders, for the authority. Maybe a yeah. kind of rebellion against the parents, you know, of that yeah. mind frame. And um, for me, you don't you don't do that. You know, this mm-hmm. is a person who's gone through so much and he's done so much for us. Mm-hmm. It symbolizes. It's the epitome of all of those things. Mm-hmm. And why would young people 
dare to attack him. And he, in fact, he's right. Even if he was wrong, but he was right. Yeah. I'm saying, give us the freedom to make mistakes and let's not judge harshly and too quickly. Mm-hmm. Let's give others a chance. And it's okay. I, I am against censorship. And I think you should be able to express your points of view. But now I'm mm-hmm. seeing it's that people are taking it as a, as a valid thing and all the issue with fake news and so on. So I, I don't know where I stand anymore. It's like, there is a line yeah. you know, with our freedom too that we, we should not yeah. and cannot cross. And yeah. people are doing it constantly. And again, both sides of the spectrum. And mm-hmm. um, I just don't know how can we find a way of, of not falling into those traps on either side. Some of it is, is withdrawing yourself from the platforms that are overly saturated with information and mesmerizes you. I, I think a lot of times we don't realize when we are mesmerized and that's why it's so important when i was asked this question at the beginning of COVID, how do people deal with their anxiety around watching the protests and i said remember you can turn it off that's why there is an off button that's why there's a notification off on your phone you can turn off the news you can turn away from it it may seem hard but that's when you're you're being mesmerized by it so when you feel these psychological changes and you feel these physiological changes notice those things and then ask yourself is this helpful to me right now you can come back to it later but maybe right now you need a break Mm -hmm. and that the group think you mentioned i think that's exactly it and you become more entrenched in your group think because with uh, this is how we're getting our news nowadays through through online media and Mm -hmm. it is not always accurate and even the regular news is not always accurate and i've seen even scientists are not accurate and i see like uh, medical experts go up and talk about covid and i say you know what you're completely wrong and i know it also because my wife is a nurse and uh, she's telling me you know what masks protect you and she told me from the very beginning and from from really day one when this uh, happened here i was we were wearing it i don't like them but i I wore it i'll get used to it i got adjusted to it which mm-hmm. is which is fine, but then you hear the experts telling you, no, it does not protect you, and I'm thinking, no, you are confusing people, or it yeah. well, this virus it, uh, attacks only the elderly, so you're fine, and now we're saying that's not the case, and now with children, now my son has to go back to school supposedly in September, we won't let that happen, and they say you don't need to wear to wear masks in schools because kids are safe. They don't get this disease and they don't transmit it. I was like, what world do you live on? And you That's changing expert. every day. Because some of it is propaganda. Some people yeah. are being fed things and money and mm-hmm. they're, they're being uh, challenged on not disagreeing with the president and, and you know, a lot of different it's organizations. It's Canada too, you know? So. Yeah, but there's also organizations that are influenced by the U.S., like WHO and um, medical practitioners in other countries who are part of the U.N. that were allowed to say things that now if you watch, sometimes you don't see them on TV. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of it is not disagreeing with the powers that give other countries money. Um, and, and I think it is very political and social, and I think it's connected and dangerous when we don't, you know, look at the evidence of the people who are vulnerable, who have died, people who've now been orphaned because both their parents have died in a few days. So, yeah, I, I've been just quarantining and staying inside for four and a half, five and a half months now because um, I'm a practitioner and I'm around people and several of my clients have had COVID. Mm-hmm. I can't 
technically afford to be sick and and be bedridden and be in a hospital and it's a lot to try to recover from so yeah i think again going back to just where we started critical thinking is super important um also collectively in 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 our will to do things for each other I think is a different way of looking at it than the way that we put our emphasis on things that are really trivial and not on the things that are really important, which is we can protect each other. And this is a way we can build community by just, you know, it doesn't really cost you much to just cover your face when you're outside or to not be, you know, encroached on someone's personal space. How did that even become like, okay, in the beginning is strange to me, but the fact that people won't even try it yeah. is also strange to me. Yeah. And if your liberty is defined by a cloth, then I'm putting it on and off. It's like, it that's doesn't count for much. <laughs> no, it doesn't. That, that's not liberty. That's not even an issue that should enter into the debate. It's like, you know, and I, I will compare this to like traffic signs. You're not at ease or at freedom to like ignore them. They're there for a reason. And so yeah. is the mask. And we do obey these rules and you're fine. It's not going to stay forever. We have the vaccine. It's going to go back to normal. This is not something that will stick with you for the rest of your life. But mm-hmm. it's this over-dramatization. And these are the people who cannot deal with this issue. And they are releasing the energy in such uh, harmful and negative ways, I, I feel. So it's if we can really get to that and say, yes, we understand your concerns, but listen and, you know, let's talk about your traumas. You know? That's but right. people would say no. Or, and I, I like how, you, I, I love how you say therapy works because it's true. Mm-hmm. And um, I think in, in, in both of our cases, we've seen the difference too. When you're like kind of lukewarm about it, but when you enter into it and you say, okay, you know, this has changed me and uh, you have chosen it as, as a profession, which I applaud, you know, um, but I do my own kind of um, part-time therapy sessions with others too, through my blog. I mean, it's really about, um, I'm nice. talking a lot about health and wellness. And uh, my aim is again to finally finish that book, but uh, it has to be a reflection of who I am. So if I say I am fine and I'm not there yet, um, no. But yeah. my sleep is getting better. So oh, it's, that's it's wonderful. Process. I, I helped my, my wife calls me a coach now informally with each other. I helped her. She had a, a nightmare, recurring nightmare, and uh, we talked about it. And once I told her what the dream signified, it stopped. And she was mm. having it for like, I think a couple of weeks and it was coming up. And then mm. suddenly it's like, we dealt with it and she's like, yeah, I slept well. And it did not have a nightmare. Good. That's great. That's <laughs> how, that's <laughs> how healing works. You help other people to heal themselves. And then she helps me as well. So it's, it's, mm. it's, it's that kind of, and that's the uh, great benefit of, of, uh, of what you do is because you are also learning from your, from your clients, yeah, we won't call them patients, from clients, and uh, you face your own trauma as well as you're going through it, and your own sense of identity and redefinition, mm-hmm. recalibrating uh, who you are, and so on. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a wonderful conversation. I don't even know the time, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. I could go on for a couple of more hours, but it's, it's just fascinating to talk to you, and and, and such a such a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so, so really, uh, it's such a relief to have like another person who 
connects and understands because these are things I um, again I'm like that that uh, that kid who's like Kierkegaard he's amazing and then people look at me and say no you're out of your mind right or I listen to classical music and say oh did you hear this latest symphony well, latest <laughs> symphony by <laughs> Beethoven and they're like no but have you heard of uh, Guns and Roses I'm like Ooh, what? <laughs> mm -hmm. No, this was oh. very refreshing. You brought up things I hadn't thought about in a long time, and okay. it was a pleasure to to exchange energy that felt familiar to me too. It was beautiful. I uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, put uh, try to put uh, our conversation in in, in, a, in a blog post, and okay. I will send it to Brittany. I think yeah, mm -hmm. and, um, she will let you know. But uh, if you would like to connect, reconnect with me, or if you'd be interested to stay in contact, I would love to. But uh, yes, uh, if you would do that, would be amazing, and I, I yeah appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Feel free to stay in touch with me. I'll, if, if you want Brittany to give you my email or anything, yeah, get Wonderful. that from her yeah. too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then I can this also is... keep you maybe up to date with, uh, uh, with my process. And I would my love book that. that will maybe come out next year. I'll see how I things go. I would love that, Arash. Yeah. That would be great. Thank you so very much. Everyone Thank you for your time. It was good to meet day. you. You yeah. too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.